you, you realize that we are right now sort of in between two great food events in uh, our culture. On the one hand, we've just come through the holidays and, of course, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, a lot about food. We gather together and we eat in special foods. And we are just on the brink of the very next big food event, the Super Bowl. I mean, really, who watches the game? This is about the pizza and wings, right? It's all about the food. Games haven't been that good. It doesn't matter if the game's that good, because as long as we have the good food, then we're okay. You know, a lot of our lives are wrapped up in food. We get together with people and we eat and, and we, we come together and food is a part of it. And, and I think that's good. And as I ponder that, I'm convinced that God is just as, if not more so, interested in food. Back in creation, he creates Adam and Eve and says, here's the food you can eat. In the Old Testament, he creates laws for them, dietary laws about what they should eat and what they shouldn't. And sometimes we read those lists and we think they seem kind of strange, but in their culture, a lot of it had to do with health. A lot of it had to do with just getting good nourishment. And now we come to the sixth chapter of John, and there is a discussion about food. That's to set in the context, we didn't read this, but in the beginning of John 6, Jesus is out teaching one day, and... The count is 5,000 men. And so if you add in women and children, probably 12,000, 15,000 people. And he teaches them all day. And you get to the end of the day and Jesus realizes they haven't had a thing to eat. And he's concerned about that. He's interested in that. So he says to the disciples, you feed them. And of course, they start freaking out. How are we going to feed this many people? And then Jesus does this miracle of, the, of taking a few loaves and a few fish and feeding all of these people. So much so that there's 12 baskets full left over. And I'd love, when I get to heaven, I hope to see an instant replay of that. How did he do that? You know, they just keep coming out of the basket. And now, the next day, the people come looking for him again because he's the magic food person. And they come to Jesus, hey, you can pull food out of a hat and we're here. We're hungry. Maybe we don't even have to work anymore. We don't have to prepare food. We just hang out with Jesus. And he'll take care of our needs. And Jesus is not real happy with them. Because all they can think about is their stomachs. And he's concerned about their stomachs. God's concerned about every part of our being. He created us as holistic beings. And and Christ comes to meet all of our needs. And to be the answer to all of our needs. But it's not just about what goes into our stomachs. And Jesus says to them, I've got so much more than that for you. God is concerned about your souls and about eternal life and who you are in your spirit and all the blessings I want to give you with that. And that leads to a discussion about God feeding the Israelites in the wilderness. And we read about that in Exodus 16 and this whole this manna. You know, they grumbled about not having food to eat. And so God says, all right, every morning when you get up, There's going to be this stuff on the ground and it looks like coriander seed and wafers that has honey in it. It kind of reminds me of rice cakes. No wonder they're tired of it after 40 years, right? (laughs) 
Yikes. And it, you know, it's called manna because that word means, what is it? And they look at it in the morning, what is this? Let's call it manna. And it, God feeds them. And, but pretty soon they realize this is the sign, one of the key signs of God's presence with them and God's care over them. So much so that God says, you take a piece of that, put it in a jar and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. So that people remember how I cared for you in the wilderness. You're my people. It's important. And the manna becomes the symbol of God's presence and his care for them. And they say to, to Jesus, that's the sign from our forefathers. Now you say you're from God. What sign do you give us? And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And if you think the manna was great, I'm even greater. Because your forefathers ate manna and they died. Those who engage me as the bread of life, those who feed on me, live forever. And Jesus tries to help them understand that he is coming. The great I am, God in flesh, has come to be with them, to transform them, help them understand God's presence and grace and truth in their lives. They don't always get it. When you think about about Jesus coming with food, he says to them, you need to have a, a desire for me. The message translates verse 53 as have a healthy appetite for Jesus. I like the way that's described. It is this, you know, you have a healthy appetite for something, you want it. You want as much of it as you can get. And it makes me, it really, what you're saying, he's saying is, I want you to hunger for me. And that leads me to Matthew 5, where in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There is this yearning for Jesus, yearning for the ways of God, yearning for what God gives us. It's a desire in our hearts. We want who Jesus is. And we don't, we're not saying we want the box that we put Jesus in. It's not that we want Jesus that we've shaped in our own image. We want Jesus as he is, who he is. Truth and grace and mercy and love and sometimes mysterious and sometimes difficult to pin down and sometimes hard to put in our boxes as we so often try to do. But when we hunger for Jesus, we hunger for him as he is. God in flesh. God come to us to nourish us and to change us and to transform us and to make us the people we were created to be. But even it's not enough to hunger after him. Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh. And when he starts talking about that, they're confused. And quite frankly, it's kind of strange stuff that Jesus talks about. He's really trying to simply say, you have to engage in me. You can't just sit and look at the food. You can sit at a table and someone can lay, sit before you the most awesome food in the world. And it looks great and it smells wonderful. But you get no nourishment from it until you eat it. And Jesus says, you can hunger for me and that's important and that's a, that's a needed step. But eventually you've got to eat. 
There are a lot of, number of different words, as I understand it in, in Greek, that you could translate eat. This particular word that's used here in verse 54, 56, 58 is a word that means to chew. And it has a sense of not just you know, gulping down food, but really chewing it. I was pondering that a little bit. I tend to eat fast. I think it's somewhat genetic because my father ate fast. He doesn't quite eat as, he's worked at it. He's not as fast as he used to be. But it came naturally to him because his mother ate super fast. I mean, my grandmother, one of the fastest eaters you'll ever imagine. You don't get to the table to talk. You're at the table to eat. And she was a great cook. You know, she, she was a tremendous cook. But kind of her mindset was when she was done, everyone was done. I'm telling you, I have been, I kid you not, I've sat at the table, we're eating, she finishes and she starts picking up everyone else's plate. I've been in mid-bite and my plate's gone. There's stuff on the plate, food on the plate still. It's gone. My dad's, mom, we're not done yet. Yeah, but it's time for dessert. We got to keep this moving. It was getting done. That was her thing. And I think because of that and because of my own, you know, desire to eat fast, I, I've never really learned to savor food. I'm working at it. I'm trying to get better. But just let it sit on your palate and enjoy the flavors of it and to savor the food itself. And I think there's something in that 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 is communicated through this word that it's not just how fast can we get Jesus. Because sometimes we live that way. You know, I, I read my Bible, I pray, how quickly can I do this to make my checklist and I'm on to the next thing. I come to worship, I, I've crossed that off the list, I go to the next thing. And there's something about feeding on Jesus that takes some time and some investment of us and, and to savor it and to meditate and to think and to process and to let the Spirit really get into us. It's not just how fast can I get through it, but how can I engage Christ and how can I let Christ engage me? It's eating. It's really savoring who Christ is and what Christ wants to do for us. You know, there are some foods that are generally good for us, all of us. There are some things that, you know, people who, nutritionists would say, everyone ought to be eating this stuff. And there are, there are other foods that probably nutritionists are saying people probably shouldn't be eating too much of that stuff. But there are also foods that are good for you and may not be good for me and good for me and may not be good for you. Maybe because of food allergies you may have or just the way your body is. I, since I was a little boy, I've struggled with migraine headaches. And through the years, I've tried to figure out, you know, what makes those happen. I've come to discover, and it's killing me, but I've come to discover that coffee is one of my headache triggers. I hate that. I love coffee. Saying, Lord, why couldn't it have been broccoli? <laughs> you know? Turnips or something like that. I mean, actually, I love broccoli. You know, I, I can live with that. I can live with that. But coffee, I love coffee. I love the smell, the aroma of coffee. When you open the package and it's brewing, I love the taste of it. I don't put anything in it, just black. And I love the caffeine from coffee. And I've come to realize that 
if I don't want to have as many headaches, then I got to stop drinking coffee. And so it's decaf and tea and, you know, that kind of stuff. But if I, it wouldn't be for me to say, well, coffee's bad for me. It triggers my headache, so you can't drink it either. Or things that are bad for you that you've realized don't set well with you, you say to me, you can't eat that either. And what's so fascinating to me is that in the kingdom, there are things that generally all of us need to pay attention to. And we all need to, to, to be reminded of Micah 6, 8, that... What does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God? And the Ten Commandments. And Jesus' summarization of all the commandments and the prophets to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are things that none of us can get away from. But there are also some, some ways of living out our faith that may be different for you than for me. We probably all need to spend some time in solitude, but for some people, they engage all of their being in solitude and just really speaks deeply into their souls and they they live in that. And other people, activity is what God uses to really speak into their souls. All of us are called to be generous, but some people seem to have the giftedness to be extravagantly generous. Some people are called, all of us are called to be willing to give our lives, but some people are actually called to give their life. I think about Jesus' conversation with Peter in John 21, and he's telling Peter about how his life's probably, how his life's going to go, and Peter's not real excited about it, and he looks around at John, and he says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. I've got plans for him, they may be different than my plans for you. But I'm doing what's best for him and doing what's best for you. I'm, I'm nourishing your souls in the way that speaks best to your life. And so maybe reading five chapters of scripture a day is what really speaks to you. Maybe it's reading two verses a day. Maybe it's praying through a list. Maybe it's, it's just praying as the Spirit inspires you. Maybe it's both. The great thing is, when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, it isn't just one diet for all of us. That he's fitting us into this this little box. But he's saying, I know you intimately. I know your personality. I know what works for you and what doesn't. And I'm feeding you in a way that is best for you. It's one of the ways in which God expresses his love for us. I do think that, you know, sometimes we wrestle with what God wants to feed us. We look around at, at everybody else and we think, you know, what they're doing, it looks pretty exciting sometimes. And the call of God on our lives is exciting, but sometimes the excitement is challenging. And we live in a culture in which, the, um, in which the exciting, the exotic, is what we're told is the best way to live. And what we find in Christ is a perfectly balanced diet. Sometimes it is exotic and exciting. And quite frankly, sometimes it is challenging and difficult 
but it's always leading us to the God who knows exactly what we need to be nourished. It's leading us to his fulfillment of eternal life. The feeding of our souls. This is the thing that's so awesome. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is saying, I have come in flesh, God with you. And, and sometimes we get tied up in, in the gifts that Jesus wants to give. Just like the people who say, Lord, we, we want to, to see you feed us some more. And they're actually more interested in what Jesus does for them than Jesus himself. And we can get wrapped up in that as well. And Jesus says, it's not just about the fact that I've come to bring you food. I am the food. I am the bread of life. And those who feed on me, not just what I give you, as great as that is, but on me, your focus, your attention, your hungering and thirsting, your eating, your feeding is on me. Then you find the nourishment for your souls that you were created for and that you yearn for, that you seek deep in your spirit. It is an awesome thing to ponder God doing that for us. Feeding us, nurturing us, nourishing us. Sometimes we're ready for it and we grab it. We surrender. We trust. Sometimes we get enamored with other stuff. When I was in grade school, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but our family went on a week vacation to a state park in Indiana. And as was always a practice of my family, when we were on vacation, we went to church. And believe me, that led to some very interesting experiences. I remember we used to go to, with a, another family down to, to the, the hills of Tennessee. And I mean back in the hills, uh, it was out in the middle of nowhere to the state park. It was a great place. We loved being there. We always went to church. And for a few years, we went to this church out in the country of the hills of Tennessee. It was called Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church. And I'm telling you, that place was wild. If they had pulled out snakes, I wouldn't have been surprised. I mean, it was eye-opening, you know, jumping and running all around, and it was not what I was used to. Well, they were—they loved the Lord, and it was, you know, it was a—it was a place to worship. And we had a lot of experience through the years. So this year, we decided we realized, found out that the park offered their own service, and so we decided that's what we would do. And so Sunday morning. 7.30, 8 o'clock, we got up, we ate a big breakfast, which we didn't typically do. My dad was a pastor, and so Sunday mornings were a little bit rushed and harried, and so we ate quick breakfast and off to church. But, you know, we had this big breakfast, bacon, eggs, sausage, pancakes, I mean, you know, the whole thing. And we ate well. And so we went to the service an hour or so later, and, and when the minister was done with the sermon, it was time for communion. And, and that day they had trays with bread and cups in it that would pass down the rows, and we were sitting there all together, and my younger sister, who probably was five or six years old, was sitting next to me and a gentleman next to her and a few others. And the, the tray came down our row, and the gentleman next to her took a piece of bread out of the tray and turned to my sister to hand it to her. And with as complete innocence, she looked at the man and she said to him, Oh, no, thank you. I couldn't eat another bite. 
And you can see the guy's lips start to go up as he's trying not to laugh. And I'm, of course, dying of embarrassment. We've teased my sister for 45 years about that. And sometimes that's what we do. Lord, thanks, but you know, I'm okay. I'm good. You compare that to what I hear so often on a lot of the cooking shows that we watch. I've said to you before, we love watching Food Network and a lot of the food competitions on there. And it, it intrigues me the things, they, the way they talk about food. You know, the judges will say, this is love on a plate. What does that mean? Love on a plate? <laughs> you know, or they'll say, you know, I really sense your passion in this dish. It's food. How can it passion? And yet the chefs are saying, oh, I, really, I really put myself into this. And I, I don't quite understand that, but they seem to get it. But the one thing that keeps interesting me, and it keeps coming back here over and over again. I've heard dozens and dozens and dozens of times where the the contestants will tell their story and they'll talk about being a drug addict or an alcoholic or homeless or they lost their job or they were were in an abusive relationship and got out of it or their life was just going nowhere and they didn't know what to do. And somehow, often from another person, they found cooking and food and it just connected with them. And what I hear them saying over and over again as they tell their story, they get to the end of it and they say, I'm here today because food saved me. I'm, I'm here because food saved me. I'm alive because food saved me. As I reread this passage, I'm thinking, isn't that really what Jesus is saying to us? That we eat his food, it saves us. That's why he came. That's what he's here for. He's the bread of life. To set us free, to transform us. And when we understand who he is and what he comes to do, then we begin to experience as we eat and feed on him, we begin to experience life and grace and mercy, and love, and peace, and transformation. And those deep yearnings in our souls are satisfied and fulfilled. And it's awesome. And we begin to understand what David meant when he wrote in the psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And we come to this table because Christ offers us life. And at this table, we encounter his mercy and his grace. We encounter Jesus. As we come to this table in surrender, in a spirit of trust and openness, my prayer is that we will truly experience that the Lord is good. Father, we thank you for all that you offer us in Christ. We are unworthy. And yet, You feed us 
with the most nourishing food possible. We pray today that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup, that as we eat and partake, we will know your joy, your peace, your love, your transforming grace, your life. We pray this through Jesus, the bread of life. Amen.